I found out later that there was a moment when it looked like he was nearing the end and he had a heart-to-heart talk. My mom was there with my sister, who's four years older than me, and he said everything to her that I wish I could be there for your wedding, uh, everything that he wanted for her and what he, uh, and that they were going to miss. And they had this catharsis moment of being able to say goodbye. On that day, I went to the auto show (laughs) uh, with my friends who invited me down. So I I never got that. When cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. Filmmaker and writer Stephen Weiss-Smith was 13 years old when his father died of metastatic melanoma. Now 44 years old, the age at which his father passed away, Steve talks about the ways in which his father's death, and especially his lack of understanding about his father's illness at the time, have affected him throughout his life. He reflects on the ways in which his professional choices have incorporated ways of trying to get to know the man who he knew only through the eyes of a child. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. Thank you, Steve, for coming in today to chat with me. Oh, absolutely. All right. Before we talk about your father's cancer, his death from cancer, and its impact on you, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I could start with basically where I'm at now and basically kind of how the circle of life came to be. Today, I write people's memoirs, but they're a little different, essentially, I take people's true life stories and transform them into something that reads like an entertaining or a very engaging novel. And mostly remove the I did this, I did that into a he, she, you know, situation. Putting on a third person perspective changes the complete perspective of how someone views another person's life. And that came because of something that I was searching for hmm. and something that I felt a need uh, based on what happened in my life and with the, the death of my father. Let's back up a little bit. Tell me about your father and about his journey with cancer. Well, my father was a very um, strong-willed person. I always admired that about him. He, the idea of work ethic was instilled in me very, very young. Uh, I saw how hard he worked. And it was a constant reminder of, you must work this hard too. Uh, nothing is given to you free in this world, and uh, you must work hard to get it. The idea of just sitting around during the summertime and doing nothing was a no way. It's you're going to find a way to either earn money or you're going to camp no matter what. But at the same time, he, there was a balance with him that he did feel that you had to, you had to have fun. Mm-hmm. Because as hard as I saw him work, I also saw when he relaxed, he really relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, he really wanted to enjoy and suck up life during those times when he relaxed, especially on vacation. He was not the person to say, we're doing this now, we're doing this now, we're doing this now. It was more, we're going to the beach and we're just going to chill. Mm-hmm. We had a summer home that I, it was a time when I really loved being with him the most because I would see him just relaxing on the beach. Mm-hmm. That's when I would get to know him the most. And, and being a young kid, knowing him the most meant there was a judgmental personality to him and that was far far removed when he was in a relaxed state 
So he was he was most fun to be with yeah. during that time. It was, there was like this dichotomy of like, this isn't the fun dad, this is the dad I get to play sports with, we get to play tennis together. Uh, and he was he was competitive with me with that, with playing tennis. But I don't think it was for the sake of him winning. It was more for he wanted to see me, mm-hmm. you know, bring the game on. And he wanted to see me enjoy playing. Soccer was a little different. That was the sideline dad turning into a coach like the rest of the dads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that story is a little different. But when it came directly playing with them, it was different because we were engaged. We were very connected. Right. He was told at a young age that he wouldn't amount to anything and that he didn't have any business savvy. And this was his counselor, hmm. you know, high school counselor saying, there's no point in you pursuing anything. Wow. He turned that into absolutely a point in doing something. And he worked very hard to have a very successful business. So what happened to him? How did he get sick? What, uh, what was his, yeah. his situation? Um, while my mom was pregnant with me, uh, he actually contracted melanoma. So this is back in you know, the early 70s, very early. And at the time, the treatment for melanoma was cut it out and take a skin graft from somewhere else and put it on the spot where it was. Uh, I do not know if radiation or chemotherapy at that time was part of the regimen. I think it was simply cutting out the skin cancer. Hmm. And so, interestingly though, um, his life was spent saying, Mitchell, go out in the sun. Get a little color in your face. This was the mentality of the previous generation. Right. You, know, you look pale. Get some sun. Get some sun. Get out there. He right. was, he healthy. Was a, healthy. Yes, yeah. Look healthy. Be healthy. Get in the sun. Not the best advice for a redhead, which he was. Uh, and you know, most likely, that's what did it. I knew nothing, obviously, of any of this. And I do know that my mother, many years later, told me that she was scared to death that his time on this earth was very limited. Hmm. And that fear must have had some kind of impact prenatal. Um, so all the studies we see today on what and how babies and mothers should be relaxed during pregnancy. She told me later that she knew that she had a certain amount of years with him before he was going to go. So I was born into a weird situation where I saw life as fun and free, mm-hmm. which is what they gave me. Right. And what he was going through and his fear, I don't know. It was more my mother's fear, being the spouse and mother now to raise two children. So she had a sense, even though he had this surgery, that it wasn't, it wasn't over. Or she had a fear that it would come mm-hmm. back. Yeah, my mother's proven to me time and time again about a sixth sense uh, to a degree that um, used to scare me, then annoy me. <laughs> she always knew when I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, and I couldn't <laughs> fool her. He was very good at protecting me from anything that had to do with the evils of the world. And so a very sheltered life we grew up in. This was the 80s, you know, essentially, you know, part 70s. My mostly 80s child. I look back thinking, what an amazing time we had the opportunity to grow up in the 80s. I know that basically that the melanoma um, came back many, many years later. I believe it was around when I was 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I knew nothing of this. Mm, okay. So your, your, your parents didn't talk to you about the fact that your father had cancer when, when the cancer came back? Initially, no. Mm-hmm. And also, 
I don't know how, but my father didn't show that there was something wrong either. I sensed something was up, but I didn't know if there was what it was. Mm-hmm. He was still him. Mm-hmm. He was still he still worked real hard. And it was basically like going to the doctor and came back and like one day he just didn't he came home early from work instead of working the rest of the day. He worked long hours. He ran a store that had many, you know, uh other stores that he and uh, my uncle owned. But as far as how he treated the cancer, this is where as a child, um, it's very confusing. It wasn't till the end did I understand what was starting to happen in terms of my dad is ill. I guess the uh, melanoma, when it came back, I mean, it took how many years? 12 years for it to, to come back mm-hmm. and to become strong enough that he they needed to go into chemotherapy. And how I witnessed it and what he did is he would go into a den and he'd get back from chemotherapy and had a little uh, a tray, almost not like a bedpan, but like one of those like kidney type mm-hmm. yeah. size shape for basically for, you know, when someone feels sick to their stomach. Uh, I didn't know what that was about. He would go into the den, turn TV on, close the door, and I would hear some pretty awful sounds of like him you know, mm-hmm. vomiting and such. And I didn't really understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that he was going to the doctor, um, got some medicine, felt sick about it. And I was told, your dad's going to be tired after he goes to these doctor appointments. And so it wouldn't be. So you were, were you worried about him seeing th- this change and this, this behavior of going into the den and then vomiting? You know, it, it's such a good question because when my father was sick, we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in anything, a cold, whatever. In fact, I don't even remember my father getting colds. So uh, when I was sick, it was like, come on, get up. You're not that sick. Go on. And my mother was like, no, he's sick. Let him stay home. But he was always adamant about, come on, get up there. You got pushed, got pushed, got fight. I mean, this is a mentality he had for a very long time. Ever since he was told he couldn't succeed in business, it carried through his whole life. Right. So my sense was that with cancer was he's going to fight this, but he was going to do it on his terms. I know that nobody knew he had it, mm-hmm. not even immediate family. Mm-hmm. I think just uh, my grandparents knew and my, and my mother's parents knew. But other than that, it was very held close to the chest. Was, he didn't want anyone to know about it. He didn't want anyone to think he was weak. Um, and that also included his own son. Didn't want his son to see him being weak. So my concern was confusing. Mm-hmm. I, I thought maybe he had a continuous flu or something. Whenever I would walk in, I walked in once on him when he was really feeling ill. I said, are you okay? He's like, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, I thought he was just, I did something wrong. Yeah. And that's all I knew. So, and you know, at this point I had turned 13 already. 13 is pretty egocentric. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was something I did. And mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I did something wrong. I'm not going to do that again. I'm walking in that room. Jeez. So this was all kept from me, and as things got worse, I simply just didn't know what I could or should do. But there was a there's a point of no return that happened. Being Jewish, I was bar mitzvahed. This was in November of 1987. I had been practicing celebration, the song celebration, cool in the gang, because oh, yeah. I was going to play with the band. It was a really exciting moment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be playing with a cool band, and. and <laughs> I would practice my piano over and over and over and over again because I never performed like that. You know, doing classical performances and recitals, but that was boring. I was playing with a band. And everything about my bar mitzvah was so awesome. And my mom made these, she made a giant 
like Lamborghini cake because I love cars so much. And she made all the centerpieces. She they made it like the most enjoyable, fun bar mitzvah I could ever have. You know, in the Jewish faith, it's the idea that it's when you become a man is the underlying uh, issue. And now, you know, for women, it's, for girls, the same thing when you become a woman. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we never really believed that. I mean, there was no, no, nothing meaningful behind it. Yeah. Uh, was that just a tradition that you were right. going through? Tradition going through. Uh, I mean, 13-year-olds, I mean, we're not very mature at 13. Um, but uh, apparently that's when they found out that the melanoma was, was heavily back and most likely terminal. Hmm. And my dad gave a speech. Everyone gives speeches at bar mitzvahs, but my dad's speech, at the end he got choked up, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it had to do with living life, living life to your fullest and always try your best and always do your best you can. So he was, he was speaking to you? He was speaking to me, I think for the first time, away from how he felt as a person, but more about... I need you to have this wisdom for yourself. The person he wanted you to be. Right, exactly. The person he wanted me to be. Uh, Those are exactly the words that carried with me the rest of my life. So I wasn't aware of it. When I found out about it, they told me I didn't quite get it. It didn't make a lot of sense. Like, so, okay, so you have cancer, and so now what? Mm -hmm. You know? Like, well... We're gonna do a lot of things, you know. We're fighting this, um, but so you did you find out at that point that that were, when were you told that that he had cancer and and when were you told ahead of time that he didn't have long to live? No, I was told. <laughs> this is the continual debate that that went on in my head for a very long time. Uh, we went on, so that was November. Then we had winter break, you know, a month later. We went to where we usually went to in Florida, his favorite place to go. And he was just very, very slow. And we tried playing tennis, and he was very, very slow. And I easily beat him. And I'm like, come on. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm like, Pops, you're getting old. You're getting slow. I'm like, and, you know, him being 44 years old, which is well, the exact age I am right now. I had just turned 44. 13-year-old, I'm thinking, God, it's so old to be 44. God, man, when you get to 44, you're this old? <laughs> I'm like, geez, I'm like, come on, let's go out to the beach and let's run around, and let's play catch. And he just, he, he didn't last very long. And I was like, God, I don't ever want to be that age. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't the, the dad you had no, known. He fell asleep a lot on the couch while we were there, which is something he never really did. That wasn't his nature. So when we got back from the vacation, uh, well, that's, I may want to spare that part. Um, but, he essentially uh, had brain damage, um, and that, that we didn't. It was a very, uh, a very defining moment that was very clear that he, everything changed, and that's when they sat me down and said, "Your dad has." Cancer. And and the brain damage was it was the melanoma in his brain at that point. Yeah. Well, what happened was we got back from vacation. And we were all unpacking our, our bags and everything. We're all in different places. I was in the kitchen. My sister was upstairs in her room, jamming to some 80s tune. And just heard this big, loud crash. And uh, and this loud 
weird sound like a monster it was like snorkeling something or gurgling something my mom came up in the kitchen and screamed in horror my sister came downstairs and screamed in horror and I was frozen I just here I'm thinking there's something in the house attacking my family and I was frozen hmm. and I you know now I am a 13 year old boy I am a kid and I finally peered around the corner and saw my father had, had collapsed he had a, a massive seizure and he was preparing to, the very next day, go to the University of Wisconsin for experimental uh, testing on melanoma, which today they now use and is very successful. There was no way he was going to be able to do that now. That's when he discovered it had gone to the brain and that he had tumors all throughout his body. Mm. And that afterwards he was able to talk only because he was left-handed. Things I learned later when huh. I Because it, it had attacked the left side of his brain right allowing him to still speak so he's still able to communicate but his, his, his mind was in chaos and so what he could only focus on was logic and logic meant making sure my room was clean he focused on that all day and would yell at me all the time and when I sat down with me and tried to explain why he's yelling all the time it was about the cancer and it's like you know it looks like you know he might die and I said you're not going to die no it's always ridiculous and like Steve you it's very likely I you know I might not be here. Mm-hmm. He, he knew, right? He knew he had been told um, they were going to try when they could, but he wanted me to understand that I needed to kind of be prepared. I didn't get it. Seriously, did not understand what he's saying. It's like, come on, so you broke your arm. It's going to be fine. We'll be playing tennis soon. That was what it felt like. Mm-hmm. So I knew nothing of what was happening emotional or intellectual level. And also, I was a kid who was always out in the yard making up imaginary worlds. I, this, this didn't fit my imaginary world. It didn't fit. This was real. That doesn't work. Right. Apparently, I found out later that there was a moment when it looked like he was nearing the end and he had a heart-to-heart talk. My mom was there with my sister, who's four years older than me, and he said everything to her that I wish I could be there for your wedding uh, everything that he wanted for her and what he uh, and that they were going to miss and they had this catharsis moment of mm-hmm. being able to say goodbye Yeah. on that day I went to the auto show <laughs> uh, with my friends who invited me down so I, I never got that and uh, one day uh, he woke up and couldn't see and I didn't understand what was happening. All I knew was, he said, I can't see, I can't see. And I remember being in his room. I said, Dad, can you see me? He looked over and said, yes, I can see you. I can Mm. see you, I can see you. But that was the last thing I heard him say. Mm. And then he went to the hospital and um, had the full impact of what was going on. What I could see, what he'd been going through when he was in the hospital, all the IVs in him. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to go to, I was at home alone. Well, everyone raced off to the hospital with them. And that was, a, that was the scariest thing I've ever had in my life. Because suddenly what you hadn't been seeing became clear to you. Yeah, it became clear. And as a 13-year-old, I, thought I had these um, thoughts that kept splitting. I kept thinking, I'm going to be the kid that everyone talks about who doesn't have a dad anymore, to oh my God, I'm not going to have a dad anymore. It was like this split. 
And then there was, who's going to play with me? Mm-hmm. I want to still play with my, my electric car set and trains that we used to do together. And say, so he's not going to do that with me anymore? And to, what are the kids at school going to say? There was this split between the child who wants to play and the teenager that was evolving. I mean, I was 13. It was, it was beginning. Right. So you had kind of this awareness of how other people were going to see you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, a more direct longing to continue to have that relationship with your father. Yeah. Finally, I got the call from my aunt saying, all right, I have to bring you to the hospital. It's important now that you should come. We went to pick up my sister at, at high school. She, she's older than me. And she came in the car and she was crying hysterically. And I'm like, why is she crying so badly? What's the, you know, me and my dad's in the hospital, but, you know, we don't know anything yet. But when I saw my sister crying, that's what was like, she knows something I don't. Mm-hmm. She always understood things I didn't. She was yeah. always, you know, she was older than me. And I'll never forget walking down that hallway. My uncle greeted me, pulled me down. He had no words for me except he put his hand around my, my shoulder. And my mom was in with my father, and my mom came out and said, you know, this is a chance to say goodbye to your father. And, and that was to shape my life what happened in those few moments. When I sat down and saw him laying there, at that point they had declared him brain dead. And I was trying to understand, well, just bring him back. But, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And um, I did say to him, I said, I am going to make you so proud. I'm going to do my best. I will try it hardest I've ever tried anything. And I will do everything you did for me ten times over. And, and my mom turned to me and said, that's not what he wants for you. Mm. I said, yes, it is. And she said, no, no, no. He just wants you to be happy. And I thought, well, success is happiness. It's very confusing because, again, I, I wanted to play. Was that success? Being happy, you know, that play was happy, right? Or was success moving forward, eventually being a businessman and really being prominent in something and being being known for what you did? Right. As he moved through your your teens and your early twenties, how did this experience affect you? What different kind of phases did you go through and are you still going through hmm. as in, just in reconciling yourself with what happened? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it's that teen concept, the teenager years uh, that we all know well and those of us who are raising teenagers. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the middle of it. You're in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, I remember it well from being me um, and all my friends. That child who was 13 and still wanted to play with his toys and the Legos, all that got put away. Box it up, gone. Anything that connected me with childhood, gone. Box mm-hmm. it up, put it away. I was no longer a child. I wasn't allowed to be. I had to be a man. And, and so was that coming from you or coming externally? Both. Um, I had an uncle who actually, right before they pulled the plug on my father, who turned to me and said, you're the man of the house now. You have to take care of everybody. And this was an uncle I really looked up to later to find out that he was a very devious and unfortunately very awful individual. Um, and, but and this was your, your father's this was my brother? Father's brother. Mm-hmm. He was in business with. It was a very unhealthy situation that happened. But this man at the time, I looked up to him when he said, I am the man of the, 
of the house. I'm like, well, that was like my father speaking for, you know, mm-hmm. he's speaking for my father. Right. So I took that seriously, no matter how hard my mom said, no, you're not, no, you're not. That's not your responsibility. You don't have to do that. Don't listen to what he said. It was burned and seared into my brain. So I felt this intensity of being responsible. At the same time, I was more rebellious than I could possibly imagine. My responsibility, I felt, was towards my mother. I felt I had to take care of her because that was taking care of the house. And she went through you know, some heavy, heavy grieving and she was alone, she was, she was dating. Uh, I didn't see her very much. So it was hard to take care of her, but I didn't see her very much. And I wasn't the nicest guy to any new guy that I met that she may be dating. Sure. Meanwhile, I'm out doing donuts in my, in my Firebird and you know, pushing life to the limits. I was, I was pretty crazy as a teen. Not, not the cop's friend. Do you, do you think you took those words from your uncle? Do you think that they seared themselves into you despite what your mother was telling you because you felt that that is actually what your father would have said to you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I felt that, well, my father was a man. My uncle's a man. They were their brothers. They were business together. He probably he knew my father probably better than my mom did. I mean, this was an assumption. Mm-hmm. This was not an understanding until I got married later. It's like, well, no, that's not necessarily true. Um, but back then, no, I took that those words as be strong and do that. Keep in mind that when my father was ill, he kept that away. So to be strong meant if you're sick, no one should know about it. That's something you internalize. And I internalized a lot of that whenever I did get sick. I didn't want people to know about it. And I was I, sick a lot. And also your, your grief over losing your father? Did you, mm-hmm. did you have someone to talk to about that? Or did you internalize that and then have it come out in donuts <laughs> in your Firebird? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, both. Uh, I, I started getting migraines, which is part of internalizing the, the grief and the anger. So I went to a therapist who focused mainly on biofeedback. We didn't do a lot of talking. So I didn't quite understand what I was doing there. All I knew was raise your body temperature. By doing this, I heard a little keyboard sound when my t- temperature would go up. You know, today I would call that meditation, but back then, I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, why am I here? That's and, something your mother sent you to? Yeah, I don't remember what, I think because I had the migraines, that is why she felt it was time to go. I also had a lot of intestinal issues that were happening. I started having a lot of pains in my sciatic on my back, and this is a 14-year-old having pains that you know, 50 plus years have. And so it's like, well, what's going on with them? Today, I understand a lot better. I was, since I was internalizing all this pain, it was just going into areas that were, that were weakened. So I would do the biofeedback and I'm like, okay, I raised my temperature, I did the right job. And I'd go off and I'd do something ridiculous, you know, school be closed. And like a snow day, everyone's like, oh, well, and be like, massive snow, trucks can't get through, buses can't get through, and then it's 20 below. But my buddy and I, we were both home. We wanted to do a play date. So I walked across a frozen pond and a golf course. I said, I'm here. And I remember his mom saying, what in God's name are you doing here? I said, well, just because school's closed doesn't mean my day's over. And I mean, this was, this was basically my mentality. It's like, well, I want to do something. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was part of that driving force. Speaking to a therapist on a level of like, how are you feeling would have been great. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other phases that you went through? You talked a little bit about being a teenager, being rebellious, internalizing your pain. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other other phases that you recognize now, looking back, that you went through? 
Well, outside of feeling that I was impervious to death, and I tested that theory time and time again, I really did. I mean, I wasn't like going to go slip my wrist or anything. I wasn't suicidal that way. It was heavily depressed, but pushing mm-hmm. the limits. Walking along cliffs, doing things that's like, if I fall, can I catch myself? And, and I had a friend that would do all these things with me. My other friends were like, no, but my one friend who was in a similar situation who always wanted to push that envelope. And so there was that anger side. Uh, but there were t- when I was alone, nobody in the house, I remember crying once, and my dog came up to me and licked me and sat in my lap, and it was like her saying to me, this is what I'm here for, mm-hmm. and my favorite dog in the world. I just, after that, felt, no, no more. I'm not going to cry. This is, this doesn't feel good. Mm. I don't like this. So I became numb. Truly, I became numb, and and I took to writing, hmm. uh, which what I thought was my well, look back now is interesting, but back then it was like okay, I, I wrote, I did creative writing stories, or I doodled in class, I and mean, I never paid attention. I just wasn't paying attention at all. I did, there were uh, kids were doing things that or teenagers doing what teenagers do in class, and I was like, I'm in my own place here, and you know, getting in trouble, getting detentions all the time, but. I really cared about other people, though. It was really a strange dynamic. I don't know. And there were many funerals during that time after that. Relatives passed away. Other friends' relatives passed away. It went to a lot, and everyone would be bawling. I would just sit there and stare at them all, just totally numb. And so part of that, I think, might be one of the reasons why people came to me, because it looked like I was so strong and someone I could talk to. I just wasn't available emotionally. And it's something I did notice that with... uh, went to another... I forgot who was... I think it was much later as my grandfather's uh, passing when my mother and my sister and I were at the funeral and everyone was hysterically crying and besides themselves and the three of us were just standing there very stoic and which was so not the way we were raised we were raised to be in touch with our emotions to really feel them and express them but seeing us there it's like why are we this way we I think we just when it came to that we became numb again Hmm. when I was happy it was because I was doing something fun and crazy. The filmmaking was when I made I was the happiest. Again, that was escapism. Um, and writing. I started creative writing and teachers saw that and they said, you experiment with things that we don't see here. This is interesting. Hmm. So I was doing it through my writing, not knowing that was something I was going to pursue later. How do you think that the experience of losing your father when you were an adolescent has affected your, your personal life? Uh, what kind of impact would you say that the experience had on you as a husband and hmm. and as a father? So we're fast forwarding yeah. into into more like the present. The present day, you know the the concept of the survivalist mentality kicked back in severely when, um, well, mildly. Let's put it this way: when I got married, I felt that. At any point, something can go wrong. Because here was someone I deeply loved, and I was concerned that something bad was going to happen to her. So I was overprotective, not with like her going out and everything like that. It was more, uh, I can't explain it. It was more just a sense that something could go wrong. And I want to make sure that I am there and ready. I was ready to jump into action and go to the hospital. So even you, though were, you were vigilant. Hyper 
vigilant. Vigilant is a perfect word. I still have my own world. I still have my life. And that's what I loved about April is that she had her life. We both were very individual, uh, independent, and but we also came together very well. We were a very good team that way. But when I had kids, wow, that changed. Um, all of a sudden, this concept of helicopter parent you know, kicked in very quickly. I was, my first, my, our firstborn was my son. And uh, I, some, I just, I never expected to feel like I must do everything I can to prepare him for literally the end of the world. It's like I had this, he must understand and learn everything that I've learned over my years, all my experiences, everything that I've learned, he must know. Hmm. And at every step of his development, I tried telling him, teaching him, you know, learning. Luckily, my son is extremely inquisitive and doesn't take no for an answer. It's like, but why? Mm-hmm. But why? And I didn't make him that way. That's who he is. And I welcome it because, great, that means he is going to be prepared. But that's, that is our job as parents. I do believe firmly that we are there to help prepare them and to be supportive. But anything that happened to him, I would jump into it. What was wrong? Is, did the carpet, you know get pulled from beneath him, mm-hmm. because that's where I always felt that something bad was going to happen. But I loosened up a bit when my daughter was born because I didn't have, I, you know, I was the boy who lost his father. Uh, you know, um, but my daughter had a, different, had a different perception of things because I saw my sister being able to get through life. My sister had a very different reaction to my father's death and was very social and she was very outgoing. I had to kind of work at it. You know, I had my own world. Mm-hmm. So when I had a daughter, I felt she's going to be fine. It's hmm. my son I have to worry about. Hmm. And a lot of that thing was displaced onto him, and I don't think that was really fair. I've learned to pull back and let him experience his world, and not to the point where I wish to have more of the freedom that we had back when we were children can't just let them go off on a bike and go ride around and the fact that I even feel that way is frustrating but understand that where we live and the times we live in it's also more challenging to do that so I do worry um I hear things at school I'm like well what's going on I want to understand everything and so I'm trying to pull back and say okay just let's hear the the sides of the story and move on because there's always a story Mm -hmm. so as I think if that explains how I become a parent I'm uh, I'm very reactionary uh, if that helps I'm I'm quick to become very 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 serious when I hear something's gone wrong because I'm like, prepared for what's going to happen hmm. but I'm also the first person to be goofy and joke around the house and I'm the first person to fall on my face just to have them lighten up and have levity and, and have fun yeah what about the impact on you professionally? How do you feel your career has been shaped by your experiences? Well, I unknowingly I've been trying to get back to where I was when I was 13. Unknowingly I've been trying to get back to having the, that fun childhood and also understanding who was my father. I no longer am interested in how does it affect me? Who, what have I done? Who am I? That I spent many years doing, but it's become more and more about how do I get to know the person that I lost in age when I still saw him as just dad? 
Mm-hmm. How do I get to know Mitchell Smith? The, the, the adult. Mm-hmm. So you want to be an adult getting to know an adult. Exactly. The rapport and relationship I have with my mother, I would never trade for the world. I know her so well. She knows me so well. She's as much my mother as she's my best friend. We, I don't hide anything from her and vice versa. And I have no idea what that would have been like with my father. So professionally, my screenplays went from comedy to more action comedy to more historical thrillers to, I mean, I started doing more things that got more meaning. And then I started adapting people's life stories to the big screen of, you know, the people who are prominent figures. And then uh, as my, when I became a father, it was like my hunt for who my father was because I really wanted advice as to what do we do mm-hmm. uh, became more intense. And oddly, I started working on children's books. I was approached to say, I want to see how a screenwriter writes children's books. I have, we have a learning program on teaching kids how to read, but we want them to continue reading, not drop off. So I was like, are you game? I'm like, yeah, that'd be fun. I'm like, I'll just listen to what my, how my son talks, and I'll just write the dialogue that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I had kind of a, a one-up on that, that opportunity. Hmm. But the closer I got to my son listening to the way he speak, uh, the, more I, the closer I got to trying to get back to who was my father. Hmm. Um, and that was the impetus of finally starting what uh, my company uh, called Bio Novel. And uh, the reason why is why I didn't want just celebrities to have their stories told. I felt everybody needed to have this. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there are memoir companies that do this. And I think it's fantastic. We're recording our history to know who became before us. Mm-hmm. And to go back in the lineage, there's lots of coffee table books where it's lots of pictures and say, oh, you have your great-grandfather's eyes or look right. at that, you have his pinky. It's like, you know, they're great. We need those. It connects us. But what about the, who the person was? Um, so I started this because I, I couldn't find anyone who, who did something like this. I wanted to read about a person's life that I wanted to read, not just someone, you know, slap a tome down thud you know on the team's like here's me it's like okay let's read about that i mean it's so hard to get into those Mm. so i'm like well what if it was something that i would want to see in the big screen i mean i'm a screenwriter i've been doing it for 20 years i'm gonna write something the way i would project it up so i just start taking people's life stories and not deviate the way they told them Mm -hmm. and write it write it that way so that a kid who's five a kid who's 10 can know who or 15 or 35 Know the person who they are. The stories are there. Let's just flesh it out. What I was doing was I didn't realize that I was actually trying to rewrite my own history of my life. And a person in a coffee shop who heard my, what I was doing told me this. I said, it's fascinating because you're rewriting your own history. Through other people's lives, you're discovering more about yourself and eventually more about your father. Hmm. And I thought, Wow. I never saw it that way. And the more people's life stories I do write, uh, the more I see it, especially bringing on other screenwriters, which I love to bring on. Not, I'm not against novelists. I love, we're working with all kinds of writers, but I bring them on now to help write stories because I can't do everything, obviously. Mm-hmm. I get to be more removed from the writing while I'm see, keeping all the wonderful rapport with the person. Mm. Now I see it even more. It's like what... It's like what the writers are pulling out the pieces, and when I'm like overseeing, saying, "Did you see the way he, you know, he twitched? Did you see the way she 
glowed when talking about this specific daughter in this moment mm. and started thinking, is that what my father was thinking when he went to college? Was he, you know, was he afraid? Was he in love with where he was at? You know, when he started his business, asking my mom to marry him, like what was going on? I mean, all these things. Mm. So you're imagining, you're, you're, fa- you're fleshing out your father's life, imagining yeah. his, his emotional life, um, filling in all the corners that you didn't know because you looked at him through a child's eyes, exactly. through his son's eyes. Exactly. Uh, spot on. So from an adult's eyes, the way my son and daughter look at me is how I am interpreting how to write for them. And which is, everyone says, well, why don't you write your own bio novel? I'm like, well, I don't have time. And then recently thought, what am I doing? I'm like, I do need to do this. So I have begun my own bio novel after writing so many other people's uh, stories. I'm like, I think I should be doing this. I, I, I think I had to do Turning 44. Um, yeah, that's the, a big a big year for you. Yeah. So this is a hard question to answer with any clarity, but how do you believe that the experience of your father's illness and death have shaped your outlook on life? There's a dual answer to that. Part of me is never a dull moment, live life to its fullest, don't take anything for granted. The other part is chill, slow down. If it doesn't get done today, you have tomorrow to do it. And if you die tomorrow, well, it just didn't get done. <laughs> there is really this weird split. And I find that in business, you kind of need both. You do need to bring things to its fullest. But ultimately, you don't have control over what you do. I mean, you want to maintain control, right? We want to, we want our podcast to reach you know millions and millions. Whether it gets there or not, really, I think is... Uh, beyond our control. You can do marketing, we can do everything we can do, but in the end, you kind of have to do what one of my clients beautifully said, let's see what the day brings. Mm-hmm. And we're so into today saying, okay, what do I got planned today? What's happening? And here's a person who spent his life doing that, and he taught me, well, why don't we see what the day brings us? So it is an interesting duality. Uh, if there's a yin-yang to it all, I'd say I'm probably those two dots somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So when you when you think back on what happened in your life that brought you to this place, what do you understand to be the meaning of your story? How do you make sense of what happened? Hmm. How do I make sense of it? How do I make sense of it? Well, I am a believer of things happen for a reason which is part of the, you can't truly control the outcome, no matter how hard you try. If I take it from, hey, this is just me and my life perspective, if I had to lose my father at that age, then perhaps my reason for today, for who I am, is to help others understand what it means to lose a father at a young age and to teach them through my own experience, I'm not the professional on what it happens or what it means to be 13. Uh, but perhaps I can shed some light, at least in that one realm, that a 13-year-old really is caught in two worlds. And that we're so harsh on our kids at certain times when they're, you know, teenagers, what, what we're going to do. But a 13-year-old was just 12. 
Mm-hmm. He was just a tweener. And at 13, is still kind of a tweener. But the, this is, you know, the, the year before high school. They're not in the thick of it yet. Um, so if there's one thing that I can, I feel that has shaped me or reason for this happening is to help remind parents that we've all been this age before and what a sensitive age this is. It's puberty. It's all these things are happening. There's so many external things happening uh, on the outside that makes you feel a certain way and, and especially in uh, the screen uh, ager's life uh, that everything's so determined by social media. But also remember that inside there's still kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's something else that I, I can take away is that my life isn't just mine. Uh, and I think that none of us are just our lives. I mean, we can pick up things from other people that we never would have thought that we could think on our own. Um, I've learned so many valuable lessons from people I speak to who, especially you know, with bio novel, that one in particular is where I've, I, I bring it home. I bring the lessons home to work with my family. Mm. Um, and here's books that they have that they're going out to either the masses or just their family that I've had the privilege of writing that I'm bringing home those lessons. And I think that uh, being an entertainer is all part of it. But without empathy and without understanding human beings and the human condition, I don't know what else my purpose would be. Mm-hmm. So I'm here to entertain, empathize, educate, and to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Steve, and, and sharing your story with me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I hope it really, hope it, it helps somebody somewhere with something. Thank Somehow. you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. After we finished speaking, Steve let me know that he wanted to share his thoughts on what he would do with regards to sharing information with his children if he were to be diagnosed with cancer. This is what he had to say. The one thing that I always was angry about and very frustrated was how I mentioned that I didn't know what was going on and then basically the bomb was dropped and I didn't get it. Um, no one had truly explained it to me. And even when they tried, it didn't register with me because there wasn't enough time for it to sink in. The, The concept was, let him have his childhood. Let him enjoy his life. Don't burden him with our problems. Don't burden him with the disease that we're dealing with because he's not gonna understand. Cut to today, being a father, uh, I... Uh, someone asked me a couple years ago and said, well, um, okay, well, we understand that, you know, this happened to you. And if, the, if you were to get cancer, would you tell your kids? No, absolutely not. I said, no way. They, that's not for them to have to worry about. I don't want them to think about that their childhood has now been altered. I have to worry about what's going on with me. And I stopped myself and I thought, wait a second, that's exactly the opposite of what I wanted from when I was a child. And this is, I was denied the opportunity to grieve, uh, to understand. It didn't matter that I was young. I still was a person who was learning things. Like, I mean, it wasn't like I was socially inept. Today, um, my children have taught me that 
no is not an answer because uh, that's what I taught them, but now they throw it at me. And just because I said so is not good enough. And in both their ways, they both are very inquisitive and they want to understand, well, why? Or if something went wrong, well, why? Well, explain it to me. I don't understand. Uh, and there's this insatiable appetite for knowledge and understanding, um, especially when it comes to emotions. Uh, today, had, God forbid, if I've been diagnosed with cancer or something uh, detrimental was occurring to me, I absolutely would talk to them about it um, every step of the way. And the, I realized that the courage lies not with the stoic nature of standing tall and saying, I shall be fine and we will endure. The courage is being vulnerable. Today, it would be so important for me to make sure that they understood what's happening, that I wouldn't want them to feel like every day to think about one day I won't be here. Prepare for that. Prepare for the end. Prepare for doomsday. Not, not that, not that. It's, it's more about this is what's happening right now. This is what the doctors are feeling. This is the direction we're going to try. I mean, I treat it more like the way I talk to them about everything we do. It's making sure that if I'm no longer here, that I didn't spend all this time preparing them for the afterworld of there's no longer dad. It's helping them understand what life means and that to suffer through something, it can only make you stronger if you can do it together with someone else and to share it because it, boy, what a lonely place it is to be sick by yourself and share it with nobody. And that's speaking from a personal level. Knowing what everybody else went through uh, outside of just me, the shock and awe of seeing all my father's friends and family members that we never knew he was even sick. And for them to say he was so young, he was so young, um, they should have, I think, known. And I know I'm not the kind of person who wants to admit to the world, hey, everybody, I am sick. So come see me while you can. That's not my nature either. But I think it's important that people do, you know, are aware that, you know, going through challenges, this is what I'm doing about it. And that has changed recently. And I find that every day it's a little, it's a bit of a struggle, but it's important for people, people to know, especially the kids. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Steve, for talking with me about your father and the journey you've been on in coming to terms with his death when you were a young teenager. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Cancer Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real Cancer on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, this is Diane McDaniel.